All right, Genesis 29 is where we pick up right at the beginning of the chapter there. We finished chapter 28 last week. And, you know, if you were to take a snapshot over Genesis 29 and 30, and we'll see where the Lord leads us, kind of it's just a running, certainly kind of next section of this narrative. I mean, if you were to title Genesis 29 and 30, it would, it would probably be something very fitting like, yes, God works even through dysfunctional families. <laughs> because, by golly, I mean, the, the revelation of the fact of how pretty dysfunctional the early days even of the you know the, the nation of Israel and of course Jacob who then ultimately ends up having the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and you begin to see boy really some of the major dysfunctions that exist within this family and yet that God's still fulfilling his plans accomplishing his purposes uh, even in the midst of these things remember at this point Jacob, after, remember, having deceived his father Isaac uh, and deceiving his father to basically get the blessing that he was trying to give to Esau, the whole eruption that happened there in the home life, and because of that, the incredible anger and animosity that Esau then had towards his brother Jacob and Rebekah realizing that Esau would love nothing more than to wait for the moment their dad died and then to just put to death uh, Jacob for what he had just done. Uh, and recognizing as well that they did not desire for him to take uh, pagan wives among the land there that they were living in, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob's mother, really encouraged him strongly, listen, you need to go and go back to our homeland where your mother's originally from and take a wife from there rather than take a wife among these you know, pagan people here. And, and he really gets sent off away certainly a big part of that to just trying to create some separation so hundreds of miles away now journeying by himself he's wearied he's exhausted he's fearful and in the midst of that journey we saw remember in chapter 28 that he finally has his first real personal encounter with God and we saw last time in our study together this what I really believe is the real first personal encounter and experience that Jacob has with the Lord he sort of takes hold of the Lord as his God and as his uh, personal uh, Lord over his life at this point. And he's on the midst of this journey now back to the homeland, back to where his uncle Laban would be, his brother, excuse me, his mother's brother, uh, to try and find a wife from that territory. He has no idea where he's going. He's going far away from home where he's never been before. And in the midst of this journey, after this incredible experience he has with God, we pick up in chapter 29, where it then tells us, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And again, very interesting. Jacob went on his journey. God sending him on this journey. It's a, a journey that the Lord is leading him on. And, and interesting, we're going to see in the first few verses right away that as God is sending him on this journey, he ends up arriving exactly where he needs to be at the exact place he needs to be at the exact time he needs to be there. And again, I love to see how in the Word of God, how many times we see repeatedly demonstrated in the Bible, and then it plays out in my life and your life, how God so many times, He just, in a very supernaturally natural way, He superintends over everything that's happening on the earth. 
even the wickedness and the rebellion and the mistakes and the shortcomings of sinful humanity and you and I's personal lives and everyday experiences and all these dynamics of what we call life, that God still superintends over all that, even the bad choices together with the good choices. And as we're on our journeys and doing things, we are how God paces everything. And, and I mean, if we could have a revelation into all the strings that God pulls to connect the dots in our lives sometimes to make everything happen in the midst of the journey for us to be at the right places at the right times and, and, and to meet up with the right people and all these things that he does, it would probably blow our minds. I mean, it's just incredible how God superintends and coordinates all the affairs of life, but yet he does it. And just like we saw back in chapter 25, when, remember, the servant was sent out to get the uh, wife for Isaac, Jacob's father, the servant recognized as he was on the way, he says, he says, this is the Lord's doing. And ultimately he says, being on the way, the Lord led me. I just started going in the general direction God was leading. And he says, amazing, I ended up being at the right place with the right people at the right time and how God just appointed all those steps and how encouraging to know that nothing different in our lives, whether it's, again, finding our spouse and finding our maid or whether it's just all the different things that the Lord takes us through, whatever our journey entails, that the Lord is with us. And, and all we're called to do is what Micah 6 tells us. You know, this is what the Lord requires. They do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You know, God really makes it so simple. He knows that you and I aren't real smart. Again, the Bible calls us sheep. So that's a pretty good indication, you know. Uh, and he says, look, what does the Lord require of thee? To do justly, which means do the right thing. In everything you face in life, just do the right thing. And so often we know what the right thing is. God says, look, just do the right thing. Love mercy. That is, love it for yourself because a lot of times... You're going to fail when you try and do the right thing. You're going to do the wrong thing, and then you're going to need God's mercy. Lord, I didn't do the right thing. That's okay. I still have a plan for you. <laughs> I'm merciful. Even though you made a mistake, doesn't mean I'm done with you. Do the right thing. Love mercy. And then he makes it simple. Walk humbly with God. Just keep walking with God. Just keep walking with God. Stay on your journey. Jacob, it says, went on his journey Notice, he comes generically to the land of the people of the east. He has no idea how to get exactly specifically where he's going. This is his first journey there back to this land, and he's trying to locate where his uh, uncle lives, Laban, the family members, hundreds of miles from where he grew up. Verse 2 says, And he looked, and he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. And verse 2 says, And a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now again, he comes to this well. And again, water precious in this area, in, in that uh, ancient culture especially. And that's why you read there in verse 2, as he d comes upon this well, it says a large stone was on the well's mouth. And again, the reason why, a lot of times a well would you know, just be something of a hole cut in the ground. And because they didn't want anything to fall down into the well and then contaminate the water, for example, you know, an, an animal inadvertently falls down into the well that nobody can get the animal out. You know, Mr. Sheep drowns, he dies. Mr. Sheep rots, 
no more well. Water's no good anymore, you know? And because of that, they would make sure they covered the wells. They didn't want anything, you know, again, that would defile the water because water was so precious. So you see, he finds this large stone over the well's mouth. He notices some sheep by it, which indicates that there must be some people in the vicinity shepherding these flocks. And verse 3 says, Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would then roll the stone from the well's mouth, then they would water the sheep, and then they'd notice, put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. This was just a place where they would come, they'd water the sheep, and then they would go out back again into the wilderness as they were grazing their flocks and so forth. Verse 4 says, And Jacob said to them, as he recognizes now some individuals there trying to obtain some information, he says, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Okay, that's a good indication. That's where I'm that's kind of the area where I'm going to. Imagine that. I'm actually as I've just been journeying, can you believe it? God led me exactly to Haran. He doesn't know where he's at. Again, he's he doesn't have an iPhone with a GPS where he can just, you know, find me where am I at? He doesn't doesn't have any of this. He doesn't have maps. He's just journeying in a general direction. So a lot of times the way that you found out where you were going and where you're heading to is you'd come into by the way, where am I and where is, you know, and this is how he's figuring out where he's at. So he asks, hey, uh, where are you from? We're from Haran. And then he said, hmm, well, at least I'm in the general area. By the way, he says, do you know Laban? That was his uncle who he was supposed to be heading to that family. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said to him, we know him. Now, they don't say a whole lot about him, and when you get to know what Laban's like, <laughs> that could indicate why they just, they're just very, yeah, yeah, we know. You might not want to know, we know, we know who Laban is, and once you get to know Laban, you don't want to know Laban afterwards, because he makes Jacob look like a minor league deceiver. <laughs> you know, Jacob was a conniver and so forth, but uh, it ran in the family genes. I mean, the, these people just had a real capacity to connive and manipulate in this particular family, and yeah, we, we know Laban. And they said, so he said, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, in fact, his daughter, Rachel, imagine that, is coming right now with the sheep. Not only are you in Haran, and do we know your uncle? In fact, there's his daughter right there. Lo and behold, at the exact hour that you are here, imagine that, coming here to water the sheep as a shepherdess as she would be caring for her father's flock. Well, verse 7 says, then he said, look, it is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered here. Water the sheep and then go feed them. But we cannot, they said, until all the flocks are gathered together and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. So you get the sense that, again, Jacob realizing what's going on, and part of this could be having to do with the fact that he realizes, look, what are you doing here? You know, there are plenty of time still to be out there grazing the sheep and taking care of them. It's way too early to call it quits for a day. Water your animals and get out of here. There may also be a very underlying motive in his heart where basically he realizes this beautiful woman who he's going to fall madly in love with, Rachel, who's coming towards him. And like any typical guy, he sees an incredibly gorgeous girl as he's looking for a wife, and there are other men around. He says, you know what, how about you go back to work? And, you know, what? he's sending them away so he can have exclusive opportunity with this gorgeous woman, Rachel, who's coming towards him. So it's very likely saying, look, why don't you guys water your sheep and take a hike, you know, so that uh, I can be alone with her here and 
find out a little bit more about her. So they say, hey, well, we can't do that right away. Verse 9 says, while Rachel, or excuse me, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came up with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, (laughs) typical guy, went near, let me show her how strong I am, (laughs) and he rolled the stone, it says, from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he sees Rachel uh, come. Interesting, he doesn't offer to roll the stone away for all the other guys who were there with their flocks. But all of a sudden, when she rolls up, let me take care of that for you, baby. You know, and he he runs over and he probably rolled up his robe sleeves a little bit, I'm sure. And he he, he starts rolling back the stone. Let me take care of that for you. And he, and he rolls back the stone and he begins doing a very servant-hearted attitude, begin to try and help and to, to minister to this young lady who he's impressed with. And again, you know what, gals, uh, if you're a single gal, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. If a guy's trying to get your attention, he ought to be doing every single thing possible to demonstrate that he is a servant and that he is a good catch. And, and I tell you, that because they put their best foot forward when they're dating. Dating's a deceptive thing. I've probably said this before, but I'll say it a thousand times until I die, is dating is really deceptive because you are trying to convince a human being of all the other breathing souls on this planet that you could marry and spend the rest of your life with, you should pick me. How deceptive does that become? So in the dating process, we're always putting our best foot forward. We're, you know, we're doing things we typically don't. And I understand it's part of the dynamic. But we're, I always tell young people and single people, listen, you're seeing the best now. You're seeing the absolute best in this person. And that applies to every dimension how servant-hearted they are, how spiritual they are. You're seeing the best now. If you're thinking, oh, well, they'll grow with... No, 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 trust me, they're trying to impress you right now. So you're getting the absolute best because when you marry, then you're going to wake up and roll over after the honeymoon. Oh, this is the real thing. This is, And that reality just kind of sets in. So here he is, and again, I think this is a good thing. You know, he's, he should be, he's, he's rolling the stone away, he's being gracious and servant-hearted, he's trying to, you know, treat her well. I think that's just a, a beautiful picture there in some ways. In verse 11, it says, Jacob kissed Rachel, and don't get the idea of a, of a passionate kiss in your mind here. Again, this is just very cultural in that day, more of a, a kiss of embrace to, to welcome her, and lifted up his voice and wept. So she knows she got a sensitive guy, you know. Hi, nice to meet you. He starts crying. <laughs> starts crying. She might have been second thinking at that point. You know, oh my goodness, you know. We can see who's going to be the crier. But again, the reason why he kisses her, he's excited, and he starts weeping. Why? It's because he realizes, oh my gosh, the Lord's guided me. I can't believe it. I can't believe God's guided me to exactly where I needed to be with the right place and the right people at the right time. And he's just overwhelmed, no doubt, that he realizes that the Lord's directed all of his steps. And, you know, if you've ever had that experience where you just kind of recognize just the goodness of God and you just go, I can't believe this. You know, the Lord's done this. This, this is crazy. I, all, God was superintending over everything. And his heart's just kind of overwhelmed with emotion and excitement as he meets Rachel and realizes that she is a member of this very family that he was sent to take a wife from 
in the midst of this journey. And Jacob, verse 12, told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So no doubt they're both astonished and overwhelmed. She had heard about her aunt Rebekah and how many years prior this servant came and told the story about Isaac and this proposal of marriage and how she left in complete faith to go and marry him and follow this God, Jehovah, who Abraham had heard from years and years prior and the generation before that. So, the, again, the story's familiar in Rachel's mind. This must have been an astonishing moment for these two to have this encounter and realize this God-appointed meeting that they're taking place. So verse 12, in her enthusiasm, it says, She then ran and went and told her father who she had just met, and that Jacob, their relative, was there. Verse 13, And it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him, again, notice, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. So he just begins to share the story of what God had been doing with them back in the land of Canaan, how he ended up there, just recounting this marvelous story of God's working amidst a family. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? So, no doubt over the first month he's there He's spending time with the family, but very likely, as we see as the passage goes on, uh, Jacob's beginning to be involved in the chores and helping out with the responsibilities of the household and the flocks that Laban has. And Jacob, uh, or excuse me, Laban, being a wise man that he was, realizes, man, you know what, this guy Jacob, uh, he's an industrious worker. Uh, it seems that what he put his hands to typically ends up being blessed and it prospers. And he's thinking to himself, you know what, these kind of workers don't come along that often. So he says to him, look, uh, a guy like you, I'd like to stick around. And he says, why should you continue to just sort of serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? And just like sometimes when uh, maybe an employer recognizes the value of somebody and they're very ambitious uh, to want to get that person on board with them and to serve with them, that's kind of the idea here. You have Laban saying, look, you're worth it. Tell me what you want. I want you on board here with, again, the kind of those who were running among the servants of his household, the possessions and all the flocks and herds of his own family. So he says, just because you're my relative, again, you shouldn't serve me for nothing. And I think I think this is wise. It just establishes a healthy boundary. Look, I shouldn't take advantage of you because you're my family member. If you're going to work for me, the Bible says the labor is worthy of his wages. Uh, and I think it's a good thing that they established a healthy thing in relation to that. So he says, tell me what you want. Wouldn't it be great if you had a boss say, tell me what your wages are. Whatever you want, I'll pay it for you. Well, Jacob already apparently had been thinking through this a little bit because in the past month, no doubt, he's been admiring more and more Rachel, Laban's daughter, and is all the more interested in being able to take her as this wife that he's been looking for, believing that God was going to provide for him. So tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban, verse 16, had two daughters. The name of the elder, the older daughter, was Leah. And the name of the younger daughter was Rachel. 
And Leah's eyes, the Bible tells us, were delicate. The Hebrew literally indicates faint or weak. But Rachel, it says, was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, a lot of people take verse 17, this mention of Leah's eyes being delicate, being weak or faint, and they take that and they, they blow it into some really uh, incredible, exhaustive type things. You know, bottom line is this. It does seem I give credit to the fact that in verse 17 that the Bible is trying to set a contrast that potentially Rachel was more attractive than her older sister because simply the way it says Leah's eyes were delicate but... Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That does seem to indicate to me that the Bible is trying to indicate that's probably why Jacob was very attracted to Rachel, the younger sister, because in his perspective, she was a more attractive woman, you know, physically in some capacity. The term there that's used, Leah's eyes were delicate, the idea is faint or weak, uh, literally could just be a reference to the fact that potentially she didn't have the dark eyes, typically, you know, again, in that culture, dark skin, dark hair, and the deep, rich, dark eyes, which was seen as the dominant gene and kind of the, a real sign of beauty and value. And if you had lighter eyes, it was perceived as, again, a, a weaker, recessive gene because you didn't look like most people in that culture. It could just simply be a reference to that. But again, we have this indication of his liking the beautiful form and appearance of Rachel and really being in love with her. That's why verse 18 then tells us, now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said when the offer was made, okay, you want to know what my wages are? Verse 18, here's what it is, Laban. I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, well, it's better I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and beautiful, they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. So he says, you know what, I'll tell you what I want. I'll work for the next seven years for you, and the only thing I want is you count that as my dowry so that I can marry your younger daughter, Rachel. I am so in love with her. Now, please understand, dowries were typical this was exorbitant if somebody would have said i'll serve you for a year a year's worth of wages for free any father would have looked at that as an incredibly generous offer wow this guy you know i mean talk about a hard worker and being in love with my daughter I mean, you'll work for an entire year for you know for free just to have my daughter's hand in marriage he's proposing seven years of no pay as his dowry and commitment to demonstrate, again, his responsibility, to demonstrate who he is, which was just typical protocol in that day where a young man had to clearly gain the approval of a father or guess what? That dad didn't release her. That was just the way it worked. I think it's a wonderful idea. You know, seven years sounds minimal to me having three daughters. Seven years? Are you kidding me? Seven years? I mean, come on. You know, if she's if she's... 21 at this point, I've invested three times seven already. You know, I've invested 21 years. You only want to give me seven in return for her, you know? But seven, I mean, that's pretty exorbitant. So Laban realizes, and he kind of downplays it, 
he says, well, you know, I mean, it's better I give her to you since you're fam. I mean, we'd much rather see her marry a guy like you, and, and you do seem like a good worker. So he, I mean, he's got an incredible opportunity, but he kind of just casually says, well, uh, sounds like a good idea. Stay with me. And again, verse 20, this beautiful statement Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days because of the love that he had for her. Man, there is no cost when it comes to love. Seven years. And again, what a fitting reminder, too, of what pure, healthy, godly love looks like. Notice that when the Bible holds before us healthy, romantic love, love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. First thing it says about love, it's patient. Seven years. And he was willing to wait seven years to demonstrate to that father to do whatever he had to do to earn access to be able to have that woman as his wife. He didn't say, well, seven days and I want her and I'm out of town. I want seven years. Again, love is patient. And one of the clearest demonstrations of healthy, godly love is that it is willing to be respectful and to be patient. And, and just an incredible thing. And it says that he loved her so much, it seemed like it was just simply a matter of a few days. Again, love has that effect, doesn't it? Just There's no cost to it. It's blinding to him. It, it just went by so quickly because he was so motivated by incredible love for her. Gals, that's the kind of guy that you want knocking on your door if you're a young lady with that kind of an attitude doesn't matter what it takes, what it requires, you know, willing to be patient, respectful of you, of your of your family. I mean, just just a beautiful thing. And 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 there's there's no limit to what he's willing to do because that's the kind of guy that's going to respect the young lady and is going to take care of her. And he's going to take care of her in the right way. And just such a beautiful beautiful picture here of of this scene taking place. Well, verse 21, our story gets interesting. Jacob said to Laban, at the end of seven years, as any guy would, give me my wife. With <laughs> seven years, that means exactly what it says there. Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may, self-explanatory, go into her. I patiently waited seven years. I served for her. I sought to provide, to demonstrate. You know, I've maintained her purity for seven years, I patiently waited. Again, the idea is you know, chastity here. He's refrained himself from physical and sexual affections for seven years, demonstrating his love and his commitment to her. So he's saying, look, I fulfilled my days. I want to marry her now. I want to be able to consummate this marriage and take her to myself as a wife. So Laban, her father, gathered together all the men of that place, and they made a feast, a great wedding ceremony as they would, a feast involved, a week-long feast in that culture. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went in to her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as maid. And so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. Now, you, you want to talk about, again, the master of incredible deception and taking advantage of somebody. Here you have this whole dynamic where Laban agrees that if this young man his, will work for seven years that he can marry his younger daughter Rachel, 
he faithfully complies for seven years, patiently working, waiting. They orchestrate and set up the whole feast and the night of the, the consummation of the marriage in the honeymoon chamber there that would be established, somehow, and again, we have what details we do. We, people are like, well, how did all that happen? How is that possible? How did you pull that off? You know, we can speculate to the nth degree. I mean, obviously, in the honeymoon chamber, it was probably dark. You know, there weren't lights in that day. They would go into a, a tent-like area. It was dark. In that culture, women wore thick veils, Especially in the marriage process, they didn't wear a typical veil, like, and some women don't even wear veils today, but when they wore a veil, it was opaque. You didn't see through it. It wasn't something that you could, you know, it was a complete veil that they wore, and a lot of times they would wear the veil until after they actually consummated sexually the marriage relationship, and then she was considered the wife after the consummation. She would lift the veil, and they would come out, and they were then presented as husband and wife with the veil up. And after they consummated the marriage, it's very likely as well that Jacob, uh, enjoying the feast, maybe enjoyed the feast a little too much and was drinking and celebrating. And therefore, he didn't quite recognize what was going on. Nonetheless, it must have been very interesting. The Bible just tells us that Laban switches out Leah, the older daughter, for the younger daughter, Rachel, and it says that he went into her, he ends up sleeping and consummating the marriage sexually with Leah, thinking it's Rachel, apparently. And then verse 25, the Bible just says it simply, it came to pass in the morning that, behold, he rolls over. What? You know, and all of a sudden, I mean, you can picture like a movie here. He just turns to the side, you know, just, oh, great. and all of a sudden, behold, it's Leah. It's not Rachel there and... Imagine, again, just the shock and the chagrin and, and recognizing that he had now been deceived. He had been taken advantage of. And again, no doubt, imagine the heartbreak. His heart dropped. He loved Rachel. Again, I can't imagine what this was like for Rachel herself. Again, did her father have to orchestrate where he deprived her, put her away to where he was able to orchestrate this plan whereby he wanted to marry off his older daughter, Prior to his younger daughter, again, was was Leah compliant with this? Was she kind of pressured and forced into this by her father, who in that day, women completely submitted themselves to the authority of their father? But yet, again, imagine, the whole night as she's with Jacob, as he's, in essence, you know, making love to her, she knows he's not thinking about me. He's thinking about my sister. And what's this going to do to my sister? This is going to kill my sister. This is going to mortify my sister. And again, we can only read it. The bottom line is you want to talk about a, a selfish father to fulfill his own agendas, destroying his children's lives. Because Laban wants to pull these shenanigans whereby he wants to try and take advantage of this situation for his benefit, for his own selfish gain to fulfill his own purposes that he has on his agenda, to be able to marry off Leah first and then get another seven years, as we'll see, because of this father's selfish choices, what's he doing? He's shipwrecking and destroying his kids' lives. And he's subjecting his kids to have to go through things, his two daughters, as well as his future son-in-law, to have to deal with a whole mess and fiasco because of his selfish choices as a, as a father. And you know what? To me, th that, that is pitiful. 
That is tragic. That parents can be so stinking selfish sometimes to make choices that really do nothing more than further their agenda and just destroy the lives of their children who become subject then to having to deal with the consequences of their decisions as parents. And here this father somehow coordinates these affairs where he swaps out these two daughters. In verse 25, you can imagine this whole thing erupting now. It says that in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and he went, and Jacob went and said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you, and I have these two words circled in my Bible, deceived me? What have you done? How could you deceive me like this? Now, I can't help but to wonder because I know that God speaks to all of us. As those two words came out of his mouth, how could you do this to me? How could you deceive me if that didn't just resonate and echo through his whole being? Because what did, his, what did him and his brother just go through and what did his brother say to him? How could you deceive me like this? The deceiver just got deceived on a way higher level. And in some senses, God, again, superintending in his sovereignty, what does God do? God's just allowing, I'm not necessarily even saying that God's causing, God's allowing him to reap a little bit of what he sowed. And isn't it amazing how sometimes, I find in my life, I watch it in the lives of others, how God has a way, when he wants to deal with something in our lives, that sometimes in his poetic justice and just sowing and reaping, sometimes God lets us encounter somebody in some ways that will do the exact same things to us or maybe has the same sinful tendencies as us and he'll let us rub up against them and experience a little bit of our own medicine to allow us to realize, oh my goodness, so this is what I've been doing to someone else or this is what I've been doing to other people. And now God allows him to reap deception in a sense as he has sown deception in some of his own relationships. And, and again, what's God doing? He, he's purging this out of Jacob's system. And, and thankfully, God does this. God uses affairs and relationships and things that happen in our life, the everyday affairs of things, to work things out of our system. And, and he's, he's training us. And he says, Jacob, I, I need to get this conniving thing out of you. So Jacob, maybe you need to see what it's like being on the other side of getting deceived on the other side of getting connived, on the other side of being mistreated when you're trying to get your own selfish interests accomplished and you're not caring about what it does to the other people who you use and you manipulate and you take advantage of because now he's on the other side and he's experiencing the, point, the painful and poisonous experiences of that for himself. He says, what is this? What have you done? Why have you deceived me? And Laban, I mean, look how casual this guy is. He says, well, it must not be done so in our country. In other words, see, Jacob, we honor the firstborn in our country. Don't they do that where you come from? Oh, my God. We honor the firstborn around here. We, we, we really respect that type of a thing in our country, Jacob, to give the younger before the firstborn. It, it's, it's just custom. It, did we forget to talk about that? I, I was I thought we Oh by God, I'm so sorry. Did I forget to mention somewhere over the past seven years that, that that's actually kind of how it works? That that we fulfill things a little differently around here. First you 
you have to take the firstborn before anyone can marry the younger. We always marry the oldest off first. Verse 27, he then proposes. I'll tell you what, he says, fulfill her week, go through the remainder of the marriage festivities, and then we will give you this one also, Rachel, for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. So he says, finish the marriage week with her, and I'll tell you what, we'll still let you marry Rachel. It was always my intent to let you marry Rachel. I just forgot to mention that little clause in there about you have to marry the older one first. So give me another seven years, since that's the arrangement me and you made about marrying my daughters, right? Another seven years, no problem, and then you can have Rachel as well. You can imagine the you know, the, the juggler veins probably pulsating out of poor Jacob's neck at this point. And not to mention, too, just the heartbreak. Now look what he's got. Now he's married to a woman that he never wanted to even be married to initially. And you want to talk about, again, a messy, dysfunctional thing here. The love of his life, he's going to get to marry, but yet now he's also been attached to the older sister, to Leah, as well, and needs to still respect that marriage relationship somehow. So Jacob did so, and he fulfilled her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And it seems that Rachel was given to him right away as a wife, but yet he still had to remain working for seven more years contractually for Laban. And Laban, it says, verse 29, gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as maid. So he takes the two sisters, plus they also come along with two uh, handmaids, as was customary. And Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also, notice, loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, which again would be typical, you have this very dysfunctional situation now, God notice he has compassion on Leah. He sees this wife, she's being mistreated, she's being ignored. All the attention is being given to Rachel because that's where the love relationship really was and probably she's not being given much attention. And God sees this hurting, broken-hearted wife who's being ignored by her husband, who's not being cared for, given proper attention. And you know what? The wonderful thing is God sees that. And God ministers to neglected wives and to mistreated women. And, and in this very beautiful way, as she's being ignored and unloved by her husband, God finds a way to minister to her in his grace and to, to meet her and to comfort her. And he does so specifically, notice, by giving her children. It says, when the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel, interestingly enough, was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction and now, therefore, my husband will love me. Interesting, the firstborn son, Reuben, which means you know, the, the Lord looks or to see. And the idea, she says, again, the Lord has seen my grief. He's seen my suffering. He's blessed me with a child. And again, that was very paramount in that culture because barrenness was seen as a curse. And it was very important to husbands to be able to raise up offspring. So she's thinking, fantastic. Now I have a child. And because I have a child... Now this man will love me. And she's thinking, oh, well, how, I'll have his love because I have a child now. And you know what the bottom line is? That's not true. You can have a child with somebody. doesn't mean that that guy's going to love you. And she just assumes, well, if I have this connection. And, and listen, I point this out because I talk to, I've watched and witnessed young girls 
even teenage girls who actually want to get pregnant by their boyfriends because they think that'll keep him committed to her. They think that'll make their boyfriend love them more. The truth of the matter is, that's not true. You are now bonded together through something physically of being able to raise a child together, but that doesn't necessarily indicate that he's going to be loving and committed to you, especially if there was a wrong motivation and why you ended up having a child anyway. But she, in her heart, again, just shows you the natural tent. She's thinking, finally, the Lord's given me a child, and therefore, she says, my husband, he'll love me because I've had a child. And she conceived again a second time and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he's therefore given me this son. His name shall be called Simeon, which basically means to be heard or the Lord hears in essence. You know, interesting, just by way of a side note, as we're going through just the description of these different sons being born, some see in this, and again, just shows us a lot of times the incredible depth of the Bible, that when you look at the names of the different sons that are born, you know, Reuben, which means the Lord sees, Simeon, the Lord hears, Levi to be joined. Some people actually see in that sort of, again, these become the 12 tribes of Israel. They see God's working and God's sort of process that he takes the nation of Israel through. Again, the first son, the Lord has looked on my affliction. What's the first thing that happens, again, when we get to the book of Exodus? God looks upon the affliction of the nation of Israel in their bondage. And then they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears. Second son, the Lord hears their cry. And therefore, he then comes to their aid, and, and he joins himself together. Then he takes them out, and then they praise the Lord uh, when ultimately we get to Judah. And so some see this, you know, this kind of underlying pattern there of just the names of these sons again of course they're just in the day naming their sons according to what was taking place circumstantially verse 34 the third time she conceived again and bore a son and said now this time my husband will become attached to me because i've borne him three sons therefore his name was called levi and, and again we know levi therefore becomes what the, the line of ministry among the nation of Israel. The tribe of Levi is where the ministers come from, and it's the priestly line ultimately where Aaron the high priest and his sons come from. Verse 35, And she conceived again a fourth time and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, of course, which means praise, and then she stopped bearing. So interesting, the fourth son, it's almost as if her her focus transitions, and now notice her, her focus goes after having three children and realizing this isn't really making my husband love me. Now at this point, it says Leah's attention turns to the Lord. And she says, what am, I, what am I doing? My focus should be on the Lord. And she names this fourth son Judah or praise, and she says, now. Again, what does that mean? Now, I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm just going to look to the Lord and give my praise and worship to him. And interesting, Judah becomes what? The genetic bloodline, ultimately, where Jesus comes through, the line of the tribe of Judah, of course, through the family line of David. But how interesting, again, two of the most prominent sons and tribes in the nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi, where the ministers in the temple and the priesthood comes from, and the tribe of Judah, which Jesus Christ the Messiah comes from, comes through what? The relationship, dysfunctional as it was, between Jacob and Leah and the mess of that whole thing. 
just goes to show me again how God, again, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And it is amazing how even out of our dysfunctional lives and families and poor choices and errors and mistakes, that God, in his amazing wisdom and his love, can still coordinate all those things and still bring about something beautiful out of it. It is amazing. Out of the relationship that was never really, in essence, even kind of supposed to happen in some senses, of Leah being pushed into the place in a deceptive way to become the wife of Jacob, out of that relationship, God brings the ministry line of Levi and the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Listen, that should be an encouragement. Maybe, oh, my family is so dysfunctional. Whose isn't, quite honestly? Ever since Adam and Eve, we're all, you know, children of sinning parents. Everybody's family's dysfunctional in some sense. Maybe you're dysfunctional if you don't think your family's very <laughs> dysfunctional. Everybody's family's dysfunctional in some sense. But that doesn't mean God's plan can't be fulfilled for your life still. Maybe you say, oh, I have made so many poor choices and mistakes and created so much dysfunction in my life, so I'm so messed up now. I'm so messed up spiritually or mentally or emotionally or psychologically. That doesn't mean that God can't bring something beautiful out of your life. The Bible says that we know God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Are you called according to his purpose? Are you his son or his daughter? God can take even the messiest of things and still bring about his wonderful and marvelous plans. And, and here's a perfect demonstration of that very thing. Well, look, verse 30, the saga continues. Rachel now seeing that she bore Jacob no children, she begins to now envy her older sister Leah. So what does she do? She lets her husband have it. You know, she goes to her husband and says, Give me children or else I'll die. This is your fault. Give me children. Well, verse 2, like a typical Jacob's, anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? In other words, Jacob now gets angry and he says, Wait a minute, what are you doing attacking me? Obviously, the problem's not on my end. You know, your, your sister's having children, and it seems that God, for whatever reasons, is withholding you from being able to bear children. But why are you attacking me, and why are you assaulting me? And again, he has the right perspective. He does point her back to the Lord, and he says, look, am I in the place of God? Don't put me in the place of God. I can't solve all your problems. In that one sense... He's wise as a husband that when she comes to him and she looks to him to fix and solve every problem, that he ultimately deflects her attention back to God. And he says, look, I'm not in the place of God. I'm your husband, but I'm not God. I can't, I can't be God in your life. But at the same token, you notice the tone of his attitude certainly seems a little sharp and harsh because he, in anger, kind of just lashes back out at her. And he probably doesn't say it in the most loving and the most courteous way is he, again, there's this typical, she rubs him the wrong way as she yells at him and then he comes back in anger and he, and he kind of just, in a very harsh way, speaks to her the truth, but he doesn't quite say it in the most loving manner. Quite honestly, what he says probably pierced her heart and hurt as well, saying the right thing, but really probably not in the right attitude of a loving heart that he should have. So verse 3, so she said, well, here is my maid, Bilhah, Go into her, and again, this was accepted, customary, 
order of that day, again, we look at it, and of course, we know it's not God's heart, it's not God's will. We see the ideal in Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman, monogamous marriage. But to them, these weren't surprising things. This is what culture did, not saying that God approved of it. She says, look, then here's what I want you to do. Take my maid Bilhah, go into her, she'll bear a child on my knees. And many believe that's an indication of cultural euphemism of how as, as the husband would impregnate their handmaid who was under their authority, that when the child was delivered, the, the, the maid would lay back on the, the lap of, of the knees of the wife and give birth to the child. And as soon as the child was given birth to, it was taken right away and it was given uh, to the, the, the wife, Rachel. And it was the idea is you, you, know, you served to basically be a surrogate parent, to give birth to a child that is given directly to me. So she says, she'll raise a child for me on my knees that also I may have children but by her. And then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. You know, poor Jacob, this, this poor guy, you know, he has to comply with all this kind of stuff. You know, we feel bad for him. And, and Bilhah conceived, and she bore Jacob a son, and Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he's heard my voice and given me a son, and therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, notice, look at the attitude in the hearts here, with great wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister. And indeed, I've prevailed, so she called his name Naphtali, which basically means to wrestle or my wrestling. So, again, talk about a messy, messy dynamic here that's created now. You have these two sisters married to the same husband, and, and what are they doing? They're actually using their kids as like pawns in the process. She never kid you, all right, you're my next wrestling mate. You know, our tribe's grown and we're beaten out. And again, just so sad. But what is it a reflection of? That so many times parents, in the midst of their own problems, they use their kids in wrong and unhealthy ways. Here they're trying to have kids. And she says in her own words, verse 8 there, with great wrestlings I've wrestled with a sir, now I've prevailed. Now I'm up to two, you're up to four, I'm catching you. And you have this, this kind of really messy situation. Well, verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she said, hey, two can play that game. She took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop comes. There we go, we're up to five now. <laughs> so she called his name Gad, or troop. I've got a troop now, you've only got two. And Leah's maid... Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes, this is again back to the firstborn son, and brought them into his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your mandrakes. Now mandrakes, the fruit of them, a lot of times were called love apples. <laughs> they believed customarily that those mandrakes, you see it in the Song of Solomon as well, those love apples made a person fertile. So she has her firstborn son, Leah's firstborn son, has some of these mandrakes and love apples to which Rachel says, you know what, I'm having problems with fertility. Give me your son's mandrakes. I need some of your love apples. But she said, verse 15, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? 
Why would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, here's my proposal. In essence, she hires out Jacob. He will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. I'll tell you what. You give me those fertility love apples and I'll let you sleep with Jacob in your tent tonight since usually he probably spent most of his time with Rachel. She says, I'll let him sleep in your tent if you give me the mandrakes. And when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for surely I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Ay, Dios mios, right? It's just like a soap opera. And he lay with her that night and God, interesting, listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I've given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Again, in relation to that, verse 19, Leah conceived again, bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now, notice, now she's thinking my husband will dwell with me because I've given him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, which means to dwell or dwelling. And afterward, a few more verses, we'll have to close out here. She bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So the first actual female is born into the family. And God remembered Rachel. Again, keep in mind, she's been barren through this whole process. Now it says God remembered Rachel. It seems it was just a matter of time. That she went and ultimately, though she struggled with having children, ultimately God graciously at the right time, it says, remembered Rachel, listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph. And she said, the Lord shall add to me another son. And ultimately she does have another son. Later on in chapter 35, she becomes the mother of Benjamin the youngest son, which ultimately gives us the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. But again, you know, here's the story. Now, ultimately, Rachel, again, she went through a process. In some senses, her life was very blessed. Her husband loved her. She was the admired one. She was the beautiful one. But yet, at the same token, she had a lot of blessing in her life, but she also had a struggle in her life. And for a season, she went barren. And she couldn't have children. And that was a heartache to her. But eventually, God in his graciousness, just like Leah grew up her whole life, maybe being the sister that wasn't as attractive. All the boys didn't like Leah as much. They always seemed to like Rachel. But God allowed Leah to have children. And again, you see this balance of how God does allow our lives to have a little bit of blessing, a little bit of struggle. And why? Because God wants to keep us balanced. You know, it's not all cursing and light and no blessing. And it's not all blessing and, and, and no curses and no struggles. God allows it in proportion. The bottom line is God's gracious to us. And in the right time, in the right ways, he honors our heart's desires. He blesses. He gives us what we need. And he gives it to us in proportion and in balance. Why? Because he's working in our lives. He was working in Leah's life. He's working in Rachel's life. He's working in Jacob's life. And in the midst of a lot of craziness. And you know what? Let me close on this note tonight. Because the next section picks up kind of a new direction. Maybe you look back over your life and you see a lot of craziness. Maybe some hurtful things. Maybe some tragic things. Maybe some painful things. Maybe you look at your present life and you see a lot of craziness. And you're thinking, how possibly 
can God be involved in this? How possibly could God be coordinating something that's a plan and a purpose in all this? But you know what? From what I see in the Bible, He is. He is. And you got to hang on to that and hope and realize, look, He's a good Father. He's loving. He's wise. Let Him be God. Let Him work. He's working in you. He's working in me. He's shaping character. And in the midst of that, He's superintending over everything even in all the little personal activities in our lives, to bring about his ultimate plan on the end. And that's a great thing to have confidence in because then you can just, listen, you can be still and you can just know that he's God. And that's a great consolation for all of our lives. Let's stand. Let's close in a word of prayer and read ahead. We'll pick up with the saga of Jacob and family next time. Father, thank you for your word and for these passages of Scripture and the stories they convey, but yet, Lord, as well, not just a story, it's your story. Lord, it's a spiritual testimony of what you have done throughout history and what you continue to rewrite in so many of our lives. So, Lord, what we've sown into our hearts, we pray that it would be the light that we need for the day and the weeks ahead of us and that you would let us continue to walk in ways whereby we might do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you as our God, and able to just restfully be still, and to know that you're God in all things. And we commit this night to you in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.